Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The simplest of simplest charts, our single best chart today is arguably the most famous chart in modern equity theory. Roger Ibbotson of Yale University, everybody had this wall on their wall in the 70s and 80s, and it is just nothing more than semi-log, standard and poor's 500, back to the Depression. Brian Levitt with us on what we know, what we've lived. There's all sorts of history in there, the Depression, and then moving to the 1937 fall-off, and then World War II, on to the malaise of the 70s, and then up, up we go, Brian, as well. Is this in index overvalued right now? The index is overvalued compared to its historical average. Um, it is reasonably valued compared to the current interest rate environment. But the problem with market cap weighted indices is that as more and more people <clears throat> enter into this and more and more right. people want passive strategies, you'll see valuations continue to head high. You go to a revenue analysis, which I would call the most anti-Graham uh, Dodd-Coddle theory I've ever heard. Everybody goes down the income statement. They go to net income gap earnings. Maybe the modern guys go to EBITDA operating income. You and a guy from years ago, Tom Galvin at Del- uh, Donaldson, Lufkin, Jenrette go right up to revenue analysis. Why do you look at revenue-based S&P 500? And I should add my colleague Vince Lowry, who yeah. launched revenue-weighted strategies. I mean, the interesting about revenue is that it's not going to be manipulated, right? It's one of the purest numbers that you can have, so very difficult to manipulate it. What I like about revenue is that if you were, if you're to re, if you're to look at the 500 companies in the S&P 500, right. there's a screen. They're profitable. They're 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 not inferior companies. What we would argue is the market cap weighting is an inferior methodology because it leads to froth or sentiment okay. in certain sectors or industries. Let me give you a Jack Welch moment again. Identify, of course, with General Electric. Years ago, revenue is made up of two parts: price and units. If you take the differentials of those, you get odd things happening. Which, which within your analysis now matters if I want to invest revenue-based? Pricing power, or is it a unit dynamic? Well, it'll be a combination of both. So if you think about, if you think about what we're doing, you think about the 500 companies, if you revenue-weight them on a quarterly basis based on trailing 12-month earnings, what you're finding is that you're consistently moving out of momentum. You're consistently moving out of those companies whose market cap is climbing faster than the broad market and instead moving into companies 
who are gener who have revenue that is larger than the broader market. So you end up with a more value-oriented, higher-quality portfolio. You know, everybody's trying to play with smart beta with single factors. When do I want momentum? When do I want low volatility? A lot of appetite for low volatility. The problem is when you have a lot of appetite for even low volatility now, those become overvalued. What a quarterly rebalance on revenue does, it consistently moves you out of more recent winners. You participate in it, but you consistently move out toward more towards companies with true fundamental strength rather than those companies that right. are winning simply because of sentiment. Francine, I'm not sold. Yeah. Brian's got to do better. Keep going. All right. Let's talk about profit margins, Brian. Thank if, if you. This is the one thing that's being eroded quarter after quarter, almost week after week. Right. A, lo a lot of the earnings growth we've seen has been on costs, on cuts in costs. When are we going to see profits, profit margins go up? Well, I mean, so profit margins will climb as if the, if the economy continues to improve. So one of the things that you will see is that, you know, if, if businesses cut costs, um, but, but the money still, but, but revenues are picking up, the revenues are improving. What we're doing is we're rebalancing based on the revenue in the portfolio. Um, and so these are going to be lower margin companies. You look at a company like Walmart, you look, these are going to be lower margin companies. But the fact of the matter is these are more higher quality companies. So we're not looking for a significant pickup in profit right. margins. What we're looking at is to rebalance into quality value-oriented okay. names. Let's take Home Depot and Lowe's. This week, folks, let's talk about on a Friday, Home Depot killed it with same-store sales, three, 400 basis points above the spirit of the nation nominal GDP. Lowe's didn't do that. Right. So on a revenue dynamic, Home Depot does better than Lowe's. Do you want to own Home Depot or do you want to own Lowe's? Well, the first thing you want is broad exposure throughout markets. Yeah, I get so, that. Come so on, you, you want the like broad, a lawyer. You want the broad exposure throughout markets. Do I want to own a Home Depot well, of course or do you I want, want Of Lowe's? course you want to own a Home Depot. But what we're saying is if you're consistently moving into those companies whose revenue is bigger than the market, you're going to end up with a much better valuation portfolio. So, of course, you want to own those companies that are, that are generating yeah. good growth and are thriving. But what we're saying is we're consistently moving out of those that are climbing simply because of sentiment, moving into those that are more quality and yeah. value-oriented, that, that are generating Brian, revenue or bigger revenue than the market. If we don't have sustained growth, right, if fundamentals aren't on these retailer side overall, and I would argue for any company, then actually it's almost a fictitious gain in the share price. Well, right. I mean, if you don't have sustained growth, then you're, you're not going to have um, sustainable markets for a long time regardless. So if you think about it from a price to sales perspective, a market cap weighted index is weighting, you know, is focused more on the numerator. Right. A revenue weighted strategy is going to be more on the denominator. So in both instances, at some point, if you don't have sustained growth, in both instances, okay. there's going to be a breakage. What every pro this has been a fascinating discussion. Final question. Do you want to look at revenue, the blunt instrument of revenue, or do you want to look at the first derivative, the rate of change of revenue, or as Jeff Immelt would say, organic revenue growth? So what we're looking at is the blunt instrument of revenue. The level it, of revenue. The level of revenue, because what Brilliant. you're producing is a more value-oriented yeah. portfolio rather than a more... I mean, if you yeah. want to look at the growth of revenue, you're going to have different characteristics within really, that portfolio. Really interesting discussion here, uh, Francine, and very controversial. Michelle Meyer.
is the head of U.S. economics, new title, new new business card, uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Uh, Michelle, you've got to sit down with uh, your colleagues and figure out what the central bank is going to do. If the central bank doesn't know what it's going to do, then what are you supposed to tell people? <laughs> that is a challenge. Um, but I think that's what we're, we're tasked with doing, not only us as Fed watchers, but as the market participants. Is We're supposed to be monitoring the economic data. We're supposed to be watching financial conditions. We're supposed to be trying to weigh all these different variables, just like the central bankers are, and then come up with what we think our appropriate assessment is of conditions and policy. So I think right now the message might be a bit confusing because they're trying to distinguish some of these short-term uh, factors that are influencing policy versus the longer-term uh, dynamics, which are going to be telling us about the next cycle or perhaps these issues around the terminal rate. Um, and that's where the confusion came this week. Even just look at San Francisco Fed President Williams. He published a great paper talking about low R-star, that equilibrium Fed funds rate. But that's really a story about the end of the cycle or even the next cycle. And then he came out yesterday and said, no, no, the Fed should consider hiking before the end of the year. So I think that confuses people, but that's inevitable when we have so many fundamental changes to how we're setting policy. Is the Fed hurting itself? Is it uh, losing some credibility? Perhaps. I think that's always a risk. Um, and I think that if you ask some market participants, they will tell you the credibility is gone. It was gone a long time ago. I don't think so. I think that the Fed still maintains credibility um, in that when they do speak and when they do try to use forward guidance, it still works. Um, so, you know, for good or right. bad, last May when they came out with a pretty strong signaling campaign, the market responded and started to price back in Fed hikes. Now, of course, that ended up not being correct, and the Fed had to postpone their hiking cycle a bit longer. But I think that they still have the ability to influence the markets. Yeah. Michelle Meyer with us, Chief U.S. Economist. Merrill Lynch, Michelle, I look at at the gloom out there. And I mentioned this earlier, and I'll mention it further today, folks. I'm taken aback by articles that say the world's coming to an end. Sell everything. Go to cash. And I would suggest there's a plethora of those. We're, yeah. We have many of them in August. You're an economist. You're not a market strategist. But but when you when you look at the not hysteria, but the angst out there, link the corporate world and earnings world into your economics. Is it really that bad? It's not really that bad, but it's not what perhaps people were hoping for throughout this cycle. So I think that's been one of the challenges is that expectations have had to be reset to acknowledge that this is a very different type of recovery. We're not going to see 3% GDP growth. We have to accept that a low 2% economy is actually one that's okay and that it's still above what we would consider trends. So I think that's been the challenge is that everybody's had to kind of reset their expectations to acknowledge that there's been structural changes to the economy and a permanent impairment in terms of our potential growth. And that's been a hard thing for us to do as forecasters, and we've been caught off sides like everybody else, and I think it's been a hard thing to do for people thinking about valuations to companies as well. I figured out the difference between economists and people on Wall Street, uh, Tom. Mm -hmm. uh, economists don't have anything to sell. You'd sell everything if you could, but... You know. <laughs> 
Um, That's probably a fair point, Mike. My he is cynical today. <laughs> cynical one. Continue with Michelle Meyer. Uh, well, I would get it kind of the the, the point that the Williams paper was making um, mm. when you try to figure out. What's going to happen with the economy? Are your models broken? He seems to suggest that, you know, we're, we're not figuring this out right uh, because mm-hmm. something has changed in a secular manner in the economy. Yeah, and that goes back to this idea of the structural damage or the permanent changes to the economy. So now the question is how does the Fed or how do policymakers rethink what policy will look like in subsequent cycles. So I think what you'll, yeah, what, what Williams was doing was trying to think on a forward-looking basis, you know, how do we deal for the next cycle or how do we deal at the end of this cycle because we've had structural changes and because we're in an environment with a low potential growth rate and a low equilibrium Fed funds rate. So I think one of the conversations that's starting to gain a lot more traction and will probably be a focus at Jackson Hole is, you know, should we be targeting something above 2% inflation? Should we be thinking about a price level target, which means that because they kind of undershot on inflation for so long, we can overshoot in a more formal way by targeting that level of inflation rather than the rate. So I don't think they're going to make any of these changes formally at any point soon, and maybe not even in this cycle unless you have further slowing. Um, but I think that this is a conversation that they're starting to have, and for good reason. Can I, can I unpack what you just said there and ask you this? Um, if you're going to set a price-level target and overshoot for a while, you have to have inflation to do it. <laughs> uh, it, it do, do you're, are you in the camp, the, the model camp, that says we are going to get inflation and we are going to get enough that that could actually happen? In part, it depends on what the Fed does. Like, so, so there is a question, can the Fed actually generate inflation? I'm not sure in this environment where you have so many other exogenous factors, these structural changes, these global forces. But if you look historically, if the Fed does leave interest rates very low, keeps policy accommodative, it can help create an environment where the economy can overheat, the unemployment rate can come down significantly, and you can have some wage pressures push into overall inflation. So I'm not convinced that that environment is, is totally passed. I think that you, you could still see those types of um, mechanisms play its way through the cycle, but it's just going to take longer. I think that's the key. When you think about wage dynamics, unemployment is low, wages are starting to pick up in certain sectors, but there's still so many frictions and rigidities in the labor market that's creating uh, challenges to getting very strong inflation. Michael McKee and Tom Keen on a Friday. Thrilled you're with us. It's August. It's lazy. It's sleepy. No, it's not. Michelle Meyer writing up a storm at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Michelle, I know Mike wants to get back to bigger picture stuff. I want to go Michelle Meyer narrow, which is you've done original research on housing. What is in the ether in Denver, Portland, and these cities out west that are, am I wrong, New York-like in their real estate prices? Yeah, you're seeing impressive home price appreciation in those cities you mentioned, Portland, Seattle, and and Denver, where prices are up uh, double-digit home price appreciation, in excess of 10% on a year-over-year basis. So I think there's a a number of factors. Um, One is just the health of the regional economies there. Uh, You have strong labor markets, um, growth in population, um, and perhaps the building has been a little bit delayed relative to other areas. So you have some lean housing stock. Um, and they're desirable.
desirable places to live. You have a lot of new entrants into the labor market, people just graduating college that are looking for that type of, uh, you know, environment, and, and, and they're finding it in those areas. Uh, all right. Um, as long as we're out west. I want to go to, to, to Jackson. And Another I, gorgeous place in the mountains. <laughs> I, could, I could tell you that the housing prices there are very expensive. Is, I want to get you to weigh in on this, uh, mm. this question. Is Janet Yellen actually going to say something that should move the markets? And I say should because people could read anything into it. and you know, She might say it's sunny and they'll decide that means something. But it, <laughs> is she going to use this opportunity to send a message? I'm skeptical. I'm really skeptical that she's going to send a message about near-term hikes or the timing of the next rehike, um, which is what market participants are probably looking for. I think she's going to talk more about these longer-term issues in terms of setting policy. And remember, the topic is about designing a resilient framework for policy. So that sounds to me that they're going to be talking about some of these bigger issues around financial stability concerns. Um, about setting inflation targets, et cetera. So, you know, to your point, Mike, I think market participants are going to be trying to look for any signal, and they may be able to find some sort of hint, but I don't think that's Yellen's intention. Well, when we uh, get to 10.30 a.m. Eastern time on Friday next, uh, what do you think the odds of a rate move are going to be? Um, or, Or do we have to wait for the following Friday and the jobs report? I think that the following Friday is when you get more more action um, around the jobs report. I think, and I think that's the right thing to trade because that's a concrete piece of data that the Fed is clearly very focused on, and that's going to inform the trend in the labor market. So, you know, when you come to the end of next week after Yellen talks, um, the risk maybe is that um, you know the market further prices out September a bit. Because um, I don't think that she's going to signal that they're looking to go at the next meeting. And if market participants are waiting for that, they might be disappointed. You guys have been waiting. I can, folks, this is ancient history. Michelle is too young to remember this. Four <laughs> or five years ago, Merrill Lynch was way out front on what I'm going to call a cautious view on the economy. Everybody's caught up to you. We're there now mm. with the Michelle Meyer, Ethan Ayers terminal value. I mm. get that. You saw the productivity numbers. Dare I say at Jackson Hole, they should do the whole damn event on investment in America. Where's the investment mm. and, and what do policymakers need to do about it? I would love to say I was too young to remember that, but four or five years ago, I was at Bank of America <laughs> doing the same thing. Um, so, so, yeah, I think um, we were obviously very, very cautious about the cycle after we got that initial inventory cycle, and then, you know, we just looked back at financial crises. Um, I think at this point, we have to ask ourselves what would help to stimulate growth, and I think that... Tommy, you make a good point, which is that we could see perhaps some fiscal spending directly targeted at infrastructure advancement, at you know putting dollars back into the economy in a way that could really help to boost activity in a direct way with strong multipliers. So um, in an environment where interest rates are so low, borrowing costs are low, you know you can make a case that the government at this point can can look to pursue those policies, um, and and that would help productivity, right? Because when you think about this low productivity environment, there's low potential growth environment, there's not much the Fed can do to adjust productivity in real time. But there are things that can be done on the fiscal side 
that yeah. make the economy more efficient and can help to improve productivity. Michelle Meyer, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Head of U.S. Economics for Bank of America. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Our friend Greg Valle has a note out this morning, very short. He's, uh, he's taking most of the day off today, but he suggests that maybe the presidential race is tightening a little bit. Hillary Clinton's campaign looking a little stale, people concerned about the Clinton Foundation. And yet you look at a, a, a service like 538.com, uh, Nate Silver's people, and they still have Hillary Clinton uh, an 88% chance to win the election. Uh, how are we supposed to make any sense of this sort of thing? Let's go straight to the source and ask the horse. <laughs> uh, Frank Newport is the editor-in-chief of Gallup, and I know you're not doing horse race polls uh, the way you have in the past, but when you look at the, the polls that people have done, do you see any significant movement out there at this point, uh, or are we still sort of in status quo? Uh, yes, I'm a dispassionate observer uh, this year of these polls. I've been monitoring since 1992, first election I really was involved in. Uh, I think, broadly speaking, I was saying this to somebody yesterday, there's always movement. Uh, the narratives develop in waves. So we had this coming out of the Democratic Convention um, assumption that Clinton was doing very well, was dominating, the polls seemed to support that, and that became the big topic. And now I think we will see a, a change in interpretation. That probably there will be some polls out, like the Pew poll that came out yesterday, showing that she was ahead by only four points by their reckoning. So people will begin to say, oh, maybe she's not doing as well now. And that's un not unusual at all. It's fairly typical uh, in a race. I think it's too early to say, is it, quote, tightening, end quote. I think that we're going to see some of these kind of ups and downs as we go on up to the first debate, which is the next big event in the election cycle. When do the polls start to have real predictive power? Well, that depends on who you ask. Uh, there are some professors who study these things and say they already do. You know, they say looking at it, uh, one professor I know quite well, University of Texas, uh, Dr. Christier Vlesian, studied these things, wrote a book about it, and he says the, the candidate who is ahead in August at this point, or at least after the conventions, because some conventions in the past have been in August, uh, generally goes on to win. So he's already kind of willing to concede that it, not concede, but to conclude that uh, Hillary Clinton will be the winner. Um, I think it depends. Races change. Uh, you go back in history and you find races where one candidate was uh, pretty far ahead and it tightened very significantly and became a very close race near the end. So I just think that things can change. This race has been highly unusual. Donald Trump's highly unusual. So I think it's probably a little too soon to conclude that it's uh, – you just read the statistical predictions that I don't put a lot of faith in at this point that Hillary Clinton's going to be the victor. It, it is an unusual. <laughs> A very unusual uh, race. Uh, does does it make it harder to poll accurately if people are, and this is what some have suggested, if people are afraid to admit they want to vote for Donald Trump? Well, that's the so-called Bradley effect, uh, something pollsters talk about uh, when um, a black candidate was running and pollsters in California, pollsters contended that uh, that happened. 
uh, people said the opposite. People were going to vote for a black candidate, but actually didn't on Election Day. I don't think that there's any evidence for that at this point. Um, that's a nice conjecture. But it's my opinion, having studied this for many years, that most people who would support Donald Trump uh, wouldn't feel any reason not to say so to some anonymous uh, poster on the other end of the phone. Is there a large undecided at this point? Oh, I don't think any larger than usual. Uh, remember, all presidential races have built-in structures where a large percent of the people are going to vote Republican or Democrat because of their party identification and a lot of other structural factors. So in any race, there's only a fairly small group of people who can uh, swing both ways, so to speak. Uh, Frank Newport is the editor-in-chief of Gallup uh, and, uh, as such, uh, our, our go-to source on uh, how things work in the world of polling. And just before the break, I had asked you about undecided voters. And uh, I'm just wondering, given the publicity that this race, the unusual kind of race that we have, this race has had, um, there's still a lot of people yet to be persuaded can you change minds at this point, or are people pretty set in what they're thinking? Well, that's a good question. If you interview campaign operatives, campaign managers, they will tell you there are two approaches. One is trying to generate turnout among those who have already made up their mind, and that's mm -hmm. critical. Um, in fact, that's where a lot of dollars go, is to get people to come out to vote. For example, young people and minorities uh, typically would vote for the Democratic candidate, but they don't do any good if they're not at the actual voting polls. Democrats usually have a harder time turning out their uh, supporters than Republicans. Second is trying to change minds, and there's still some of that that can go on. Uh, you've seen that, for example, during the conventions, where every indicator showed that people did swing more towards uh, Trump and the Republicans during his convention, and then swung more back towards Clinton and the Democrats during right. the convention. So minds can move. The debates can make a difference. Romney actually did better for a while after the first debate in 2012. Uh, so there's both of them, uh, those factors going on, trying to increase turnout uh, of those who already have their mind made up and trying to change some minds. Frank, Rutherford Hayes, 1876, 82% turnout. That was the I first was, guy you voted for, I was right? stunned at the lines that day. <laughs> President Obama, 2008, 58%, down from 82%. But, of course, President Obama's turnout looks spectacular compared to some of what we saw. Bill Clinton, 1996, 49%. Uh, uh, What's the update on turnout? I, 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 I think it's absolutely key. Do you know now or do you need to wait for the last day of October? Um, I think we need to wait. There's some structural factors involved here. I do think turnout will be higher than those midterm elections. Uh, the one you mentioned, Clinton versus Doe, was boring. You know, he was pretty much going to win. Everybody knew, and it was kind of a— Is that where we are right now with Secretary no, Clinton? No, uh, because now we are in an open-seat election, which typically does have higher turnout. Open-seat elections okay. generally build more turnout. So structurally, I would think it would certainly be higher uh, than in those midterm elections. Right. But I do think we have to wait and see. We ask questions <laughs> like how much attention are you paying and so forth, but a little early to try to gauge how that's going to yeah. affect turnout. Neil Gabler writing for BillMoyers.com, clearly with a left tilt, quote, it's just easier for the press to paint Democrats as Chablis-swilling elitists. Mike McKee caught me, called me that the other day. Chablis-swilling I've never elitist. seen you drink Chablis. Tell me about disaffected. I'm just now beginning to see a, 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 a tinge of disaffected language across all of this analysis. Are there disaffected Reagan Democrats? Are there disaffected Republicans? Or is that way overweighted? 
Well, I think always there are going to be disaffected people on both sides, if you mean people who are not happy with the candidates. Let me give you an example. We just Please. asked 46 percent of Republicans say they're satisfied Trump's their candidate. Fifty-two percent say they wish somebody else was a Republican nominee. But for the Democrats, it's just 56 percent uh, data that we're going to be releasing later today who say that they're satisfied Hillary Clinton is their nominee. Now, how does that, so com- how does that compare to- with Governor Romney and President Obama? It's, it's lower. We've got some comparisons in there. We had 80 percent of Democrats who were satisfied with Obama measured at a different point in the campaign. And okay. up to 80 percent who've been uh, happy, 60 percent with Romney at one point, 80 percent with George yeah. Bush Sr. when we've asked it before. So, yes, there are a lot of people who aren't thinking that these are the best possible candidates for their party. Whether or not that means they're going to vote for the other side is a different question. There has been a lot of unusual uh, campaigning and uh, a lot of uh, words expended on um, foreign policy and immigration and things like that. But uh, James Carville in 1992 posited it is the economy, stupid. Uh, and I'm wondering if really what we should be watching rather than the debates and et cetera, et cetera, is, uh, you know, the first Friday in September and the first Friday in October when we get the jobs reports, is the economy likely to be the deciding factor again this time? Yeah, yeah it always is. Um, we ask people what's their highest priority for the election, what's the most important problem facing the country. It is right now the economy still. There's no question about that. Uh, candidates know this, and that's why they've been giving economic speeches in Michigan over the last couple of weeks. So, yes, uh, what the economy looks like is going to make a big difference. But, again, perception's not reality. You've got a lot of indicators now that could make us think, hey, the economy's doing well. But our economic confidence, consumer confidence we track is in net negative territory right now. So a lot of Americans, for whatever reason, don't want to think that the economy is doing better, and that's what's well, going to matter. The economy has been muddling along since uh, the recovery began. How, does you, how do your numbers correlate with uh, election um, prospects for in, basically Hillary Clinton's representing the incumbent uh, party? How, how does it track with that? Well, there's not a perfect correlation. If you look at the graph of consumer confidence versus um, the election outcome, it's not a perfect correlation because there's so many other factors that are involved. But it's clearly uh, a factor when you've got one party that has occupied the White House for eight years and you've got the other candidate now saying, uh, elect me because I need to change things dramatically. Now, keep in mind, if you read Hillary Clinton's economic speech, she'll say things like, we're going to create more jobs than any president since World War II. So she's claiming she's going to make a lot of change as well, but she is yeah. the, the party of the, uh, that's been in the White House. <clears throat> Based on your knowledge, and of course Gallup's knowledge on polling is, is prodigious to say the least, if any given candidate gets up with the pivot that Mr. Trump had last night, do the voters does does it shift your voting in the next six or seven days? If a candidate says, "Oh, I'm sorry, new leaf," however you want to phrase it, does it shift what people think? Does it really work? You know, that's a, a question which is really dependent on the situation. You're talking about Trump saying, "Oh, I made some people mad." I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. yeah, yeah. I'm suddenly sorry. becoming a more humble kind of guy. I tried that last night at home, Frank. It didn't work. Yeah, I understand. I think that I can't generalize. I think we just have to wait and see. As I said at the outset of our discussion here, I do think these things come in waves, and I wouldn't be shocked if in the next week or two the narrative is Trump catching back up, you know, doing better. Uh, but let's wait and see. The, the answer are going to yeah. be in the data. How does the secretary respond to Mr. Trump's new effort, what we've seen and clearly what we're going to see in the coming days? Do you see in the history of campaigns abrupt adaptation to someone desperate? 
Um, that's a question that her campaign team is going to have to. Yeah, we're answer. asking you. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. No, what I would do if I were advising the Clinton campaign is one and only one thing, and that is do a major, major press conference about emails. Uh, we are finding more and more data. When you ask people about Hillary Clinton, they just say emails. That's so dominant and so prevalent, such an issue for yeah, her that she has to come out and more directly, in my opinion, if I were advising her, do some much mm-hmm. more major, kind of like Trump did, say, I'm responsible. Right. Do like Tylenol with Johnson Johnson. I'm writing something on that. I'm responsible. It's not our fault, but I take full responsibility. I made a mistake. I'm going to do this, uh, which is not in her nature because she's a, a lawyer who's used to giving depositions and not showing any kind of evidence of guilt. But she needs to do that because I think the data are clear that that's mm-hmm. the impression people have of her. That one word comes up more than anything else when right. you track what are you reading, seeing, or hearing about Hillary Clinton. Frank Newport, Showtime begins the first Tuesday of September. What's your biggest mystery about the American electorate? My biggest mystery about the American electorate? Um, I have no mysteries about them because I study them so carefully and what have you. I think right now the biggest factor going on is that Americans, uh, this is important, are very, very, very upset with their government and elected representatives. And that's what Trump has tapped into, and that's what's critical in this election. Brilliant. Americans want some change. Brilliant briefing. Frank Newport, thank you so much. With Gallup, of course, he is their uh, editor-in-chief. No numbers, but still a lot to talk about with Michael Darda. He's chief economist at MKM Partners. And uh, the the story of the week has been, uh, what's the Fed going to do? What's Janet Yellen going to say next Friday in Jackson Hole? Because we're getting all kinds of different answers from different Fed people. And uh, as one market participant put it this morning, there is a remarkable lack of consensus on the policymaking body. Uh, Michael, how do you read the tea leaves at this point, uh, or can you even uh, attempt to read them? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You know, I would say based on the Fed minutes released this week in some of the uh, recent speeches made, uh, comments by um, Dudley um, and Williams. It still looks like the, you know, the consensus on the Fed um, is for one more rate increase this year. Meaning, if we look at just Fed zero and just Fed voters, which is what's relevant for policy this year, the you know the the doves and the hawks sort of wash themselves out, and in you know, and those in the middle would probably be Yellen, Dudley, Rod, Rosengren, and Powell, and. You know, those members still seem to um, desire at least one rate rise this year. And once again, the market has doubts uh, over whether they'll be able to deliver. Well, are they going to even try, I guess, is is the question. Um, well, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, we, we've had quite some time now where the Fed signals a desire to raise rates multiple times and the market has doubts. And then, you know, the Fed ends up getting criticized that, you know, they should just go out there and, and ignore markets. But they really can't do right. that. You remember, you know, in December, the Fed raised rates into a credit market storm, signaled four more increases this year, and they had no choice to back off. If they didn't back off from that approach, you know, they would have pushed the economy right. over a cliff. It would have become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the bond market is still telling the Fed that even with the 
much more subdued path of short rate increases seen in futures markets, they're going to undershoot their target. So one has to ask, why are they even talking about tightening? <clears throat> Michael Darda, the, the, the single sentence note this morning is from the good David Kotak uh, down in Florida, and he compares private market LIBOR to the artificial yield of the three-month T-bill. These are both 90-day, three-month rates. And the fact is the spread has widened out to where it was in 2011-2012, nowhere near where it was in August uh, nine years ago. But he makes a clear um, idea that an elevated LIBOR private market rate is the equivalency of a Fed second quarter point rate hike. Is the market doing the work for Chair Yellen? It's a, uh, actually a very interesting point, Tom. So the LIBOR rate is an unsecured funding rate. And the T-bill, I wouldn't say, is artificial You know, at these levels. But it's being bid up, higher price, lower yield. Yep. yep. You still have a very high demand for, you know, for safety and for risk-free assets. And, you know, the, you know, the LIBOR contains some, you know, some risk of default. And so moving northward in that fashion, you know, I think is it's accurate to say that that's tantamount to a, you know, to a tightening in conditions, which again brings us back to the point I tried to make before, which is if, you know, if you have that happening and you have nominal growth slowing, and it is, and you have core inflation rolling over, and it is, uh, why is the Fed still signaling a desire to tighten? And I think the reason is because at the end of the day, they still have more confidence in Phillips curve econometric models than they do in markets. The overall financial conditions have gotten easier, though. So um, what do we make of the? Well, yep, that's a good point, Mike. So the stock market, you know, obviously is back close to the highs of the cycle. So there's, you know, been some... Um, confidence recently in, you know, in, in at least in the stock market's behavior that we're transitioning to a lower growth path, but not a recessionary one. And that was the fear in January going into the first half of, half of February with the steep market decline. And risk spreads have come in fairly powerfully powerfully this year. So, you know, just judging based on, on those two elements, yes, you could say financial conditions have eased. But, you know, the bond market is really not convinced that we're going to see much in the way of, of nominal growth momentum. The level of rates is quite low. The yield curve has narrowed a lot. And critically, inflation expectations, even with this powerful narrowing of risk spreads, have utterly failed to reverse course, and they are at levels that are well below what we would mm. expect to see if the Fed were going to hit its target. And that's going to be a serious problem that ends up coming back to bite the Fed in the next downturn, um, you know, if it doesn't reverse. And I think, you know, perhaps that's one of the reasons we've recently seen some discussion about the Fed changing <clears throat> targets and yeah. going for a more aggressive target. This was, you know, yeah. President Williams this week made a big splash with a blog post on that. There does not seem to be a lot of belief in the markets uh, that we can discern, Michael, that uh, the Federal Reserve is going to be raising rates because while you do have some of these um, things uh, I impacting something like LIBOR, you, you don't have a broad uh, rise in the, the cost of money anywhere. Uh, no, Mike, you don't. And I mean, markets have been skeptical about the Fed's dot plot for some time, and the Fed's dot plot has been in an ever downshifting trajectory. 
So the Fed has been way too optimistic about the path of short-term interest rates, at least in terms of rising. And the market's been more pessimistic, and the market's been right. That raises a question, though, about um, is the Fed losing credibility? Yes, I think the Fed is losing credibility. I mentioned the tips inflation break-even market before. Um, You know, it's not perfect, but when you have a sustained systematic decline in inflation expectations and the Fed's out there saying, well, we don't really know what that means or we think that there are distortions from liquidity and risk premia, you know, okay, fine. But then nominal GDP growth slows down uh, in a fairly dramatic fashion, uh, beginning right after the Fed started the taper and then proceeded to end QE and lift rates for the first time. And now we have core inflation rolling over. So at some point, you know, I think they're going to have to recognize, um, you know, that the confidence they've had in these Phillips curve models of the inflation process, which simply say, well, if the labor market's tight enough, we're going to hit our inflation target, are in serious, serious doubt. Michael, I have a chart in my Bloomberg, which I actually call the Darta chart. And it's nominal GDP. If you regress nominal GDP from 2004, 12 years back, pre-crisis, and critically, if you regress it from, say, 2010, it's moving downwards. I mean, the animal spirit of this nation is diminishing. Are you worried about real economic growth or are you worried about the overlay of inflation? Well, Tom, I'm worried about both. I mean, we have a problem on the real side, which is that productivity growth has been incredibly weak, compounding at just 0.6% per annum over the last six years. And we have a demographic headwind. So working age population growth is going to be slower. So growth potential is lower. On top of that, we've had exceptionally weak nominal growth and low inflation, which is a demand side problem. The Fed can deal with the demand side problem. Um, The supply side issues, the Fed doesn't have much control over. Now, you know, there's a big debate as to whether that's temporary, you know, um, you know, or more permanent. But I'm really I'm quite worried about both. And it's interesting. The inflation hawks have really been hanging their hats either on the pickup in hourly wage growth or the momentum in core services inflation, utterly failing to recognize that those are slow moving, lagging indicators. And if nominal GDP growth is decelerating sharply, and now we're at the very low end of the six-year range. Unless that reverses, there's just simply not going to be enough aggregate demand to push inflation higher, period. Where does Congress fit into this? I get the idea of central bank, and I think we all have a grasp of monetary responsibility. Do legislative authorities have a responsibility to legislate the demand side of the economy? I'm more of a traditional monetarist in the respect that, you know, it's central banks that that really have the influence and the responsibility over the demand side. There's a big debate now, you know, a lot of renewed interest in fiscal stimulus, but let's not let's not forget that Japan ran very large deficits over a period in which the BOJ completely failed, and the result was stagnation in nominal GDP and deflation. So I'm very skeptical that fiscal policy, if we're talking about demand-side Keynesian stimulus, is going to save the day if we don't have the Fed on the right mm-hmm. track. Where fiscal policymakers can do some good, and they're not doing it, and probably won't do it, do it in the future based on you know, our candidates for the next election, 
in is on the supply side, so reforming tax codes, reforming regulatory codes, reforming immigration policies to be more pro-growth, reforming education. So, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to get much of a consensus in a positive direction on that score. But fiscal policy aimed at the supply side and don't let the central banks off the hook. They are responsible for the demand side. Well, yes, but, um, you know, what you're saying on the supply side is all textbook. But if you can't get the animal spirits, if you can't get people uh, on the demand side, you're not going to get anywhere. And that that is the answer we keep getting from the, the business people is we, we don't see any visibility for profits because there's no demand. So we're not going to invest. Right, right. Listen, I will concede this much. I will say that you know, if you have a situation where the central bank, you know, using the tools of monetary policy, either short rates or the base, if they set out to hit a target, and let's not fool ourselves, the Fed is not easing. They've been tightening. So, you know, there's this bizarre perception that the Fed's trying to ease and failing. No, they've been tightening and they're succeeding, uh, perhaps more so than they expected. But let's say that Dealing with the next downturn, the Fed is, is, is easing policy. If it seems like that is simply not going to be powerful enough, then I do think there's place in the discussion for, you know, mm. for a fiscal backstop to help right. the Fed. You know, look, if they set an aggressive enough target and they're credible, then you may not need the fiscal backstop, right? right? Because we're using fiscal policy. We're running up the debt ratio. And if the Fed can achieve its targets without that, then, you know, that really ought to be the first line of defense. Michael, 10 seconds. Are you going to have a lunch this weekend like you had in Tuscany six weeks ago? (laughs) Like seven bottles of wine and, you know, look like one of I was uh, I was on cappuccino. You're um, on cappuccino, <laughs> Michael Darda, not from Tuscany. Yeah, Thank you so right. Much. Okay. MKM yeah. Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.